Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. This is Abstract. You know what it is. Another excellent episode coming your way right this moment. I'm super excited to be introducing Tanya Singh to the show today. Tanya, welcome. How's it going? I'm good, Jeremy, and thank you for having me on this excellent podcast. (laughs) Yes, it is an excellent one, ain't it? Okay, so before we get into things, please go ahead and tell me and the listeners who you are and what it is that you do. Sure. So I am a PhD candidate in marketing at the John Walton School of Business at Concordia University in Montreal. And I study the psychological and behavioral consequences of putting off decisions. Uh, I'm basically interested in also sort of trade-offs like trading off quality and quantity. And uh, in addition to my current PhD, I actually have a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in evolutionary biology. As far as my interests go, I love hiking, I love cuddling with my dog, who's old and grumpy, and I also daydream about owning an ice cream shop. I love that. Would your dog be beside you in that ice cream shop? Sure. I mean, he would be the mascot, I'm pretty sure. That's amazing. Oh, God. We can maybe talk about the ice cream shop a little bit later. That's kind of in line with one of my dreams of opening a patisserie and just making special desserts every day for people to come in and just try them out. But... In any event, we're here for the science, and then we'll talk about dessert a little bit later. So thank you so much for being here again, Tanya. We're going to hop right into things. So a few months ago, we had Alexa Ruel on the show in the first installment of what I hope to be a series of decision-making episodes here on Abstract. That was episode 53, where we discussed the topics of cost-benefit analysis, cognitive effort, mental models, and the role of memory in decision-making. So today... We're going to pick up where we left off in a sense, but shift from the purely psychological aspects of choice to focus more on the marketing and behavioral aspects of it as well. So already in the introduction you gave for yourself, you mentioned something about timing. How does the timing of choices factor into the decision-making process? What is the role of time? So that's a very good question. When it comes specifically to choice deferral, which is sort of putting off choices, the role of time has been looked at. So, uh, you know, we might think of time as one of the major variables because time is crucial to making a decision, right? Sometimes when we go to the store, we don't have an infinite amount of time to decide, you know, what milk we want to buy or what kind of pasta sauce we want to buy, right? So a lot of times, like, we will rely on shortcuts, cognitive shortcuts or heuristics to reduce the amount of time that we used to make a decision. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it basically gets into habitual shopping. So I will buy a brand that's familiar to me that I've been buying since I was 10, you know, in terms of milk or, you know, the kind of milk that my mom was feeding me when I was a kid. And so time basically then becomes important when you are in a context where you're not familiar with the options. And so you have to spend more time to understand what the options are to trade off the various attributes to, you know, basically gather more information. And what's been seen, at least in the choice deferral literature, is that when you have more time to make a decision, you're actually more likely to defer choice. And the reason for that is the more time you have, the more sort of there's an escalation of commitment. And so you want to make a better decision because you're allocating more time to the decision. 
And so that increases the stakes for the choice. So in mm. contrast to this, counterintuitively, when you have lesser time, you actually use more simple decision-making rules. So you say, okay, product A has three attributes, product B has three attributes, but because I'm low on time, I'm only gonna focus on the attribute that I really care about. Uh -huh. Whereas yeah. if you were making a decision in a unlimited time frame, you would say, oh, I care about attribute A, I also care about attribute B, I also care about attribute C. And so you're going to take more time to compare the two products across these attributes. So in some sense, actually, counterintuitively, time pressure can actually accelerate choice making. You know, the way that you're describing decision making, it almost sounds more more rigid and calculated than it feels. Like there there is this subjective feeling of of trying to decide between two or more things. And even just continuing with the grocery example, I love grocery shopping. <laughs> I find it extremely enjoyable. But when I'm deciding between multiple options, I honestly can't really think of a time where I was consciously comparing multiple criteria. Very often at the grocery store, the main criterion is, is price. If there are two similar products and one is cheaper, I'll just go for that one because I don't have extremely strong preferences one way or another. But why why is there a difference, maybe at least just as from personal experience, between the, the subjective experience of comparison and the actual underlying mechanisms of like trait comparison? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, yes, in addition to the actual cognition that's going on, there's also a subjective or abstract feeling of how your thought process during making the choice. So mm -hmm. what research has found is that some processes just have a metacognitive fluency about them. So what that means is even though the task may be a bit difficult, you're used to doing the task and so it feels fluent in your, in your mind. But gotcha. when a task is new, for example, there's been some research on fluency which basically looks at making the same decision, but in one condition, the information about the decision, so the information about the choice is presented to you using a font that's hard to read. And in another condition, the same information is presented in a font that's easy to read. So now basically you have the same information, but just the, the difficulty of reading it has been manipulated. Okay. And so what's been seen is that when the font becomes difficult to read, the metacognitive fluency associated with that choice becomes lower. So people associate that choice with a sort of more difficult metacognition. And the interesting thing here is that people interpret that choice is more difficult. So even though the choice is exactly the same, because <laughs> the, you know, the yeah. information is exactly right. the same, they yeah. attribute that metacognitive difficulty to the choice. So they're not able to disentangle the fact that the choice itself is this, is not difficult. It's just the the way the choice is presented that's difficult. Yeah, also, that maybe another variable that probably plays into this is the involvement of, in your, in the choice. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to go back to what you said about price because price is also a very important variable. Price is not just an indicator in and of itself. It's also an indicator of other attributes such as quality, right? So we often use, that's a heuristic that we use, we often use price 
as a sort of proxy for quality. So if we see something that's more expensive, we say, oh, this is expensive because it's rare or really high quality and uses really mm-hmm. high quality ingredients. So even though that doesn't seem very conscious, that is subconsciously happening in our brains. There was an interesting thing directly related to this it happened to me yesterday at the grocery store. I was in the uh, cookie aisle. I swear I wasn't buying any of it. I was just looking and there were two different kind brands of wafers. And one of the brands of wafers was like the uh, supermarket brand. It was a, it, The packaging was very simple and it was like on sale. It was like 99 cents, which is crazy cheap for wafers. Now, I, I've already had these wafers and they're, and they're horrendous. But there's, uh, there's another package of wafers that was three bucks, which I have had, which I know is better. But there was something about just the fact that there was that price differential. Having the $3 wafer next to the $1 wafer made the $1 wafer seem even that much lower quality. Because if someone's charging $3, you must be making a pretty bad product if you can get a wafer charging a third of the price. So not only is price this indicator of quality, but you almost get this like situational influence of one price compared to another. And so this just obviously the complexity builds here tremendously. That's a really important example. And I think it gets into one of the most common effects that we see in marketing, which is sort of the compromise effect, right? So if you had a $1 wafer and a $3 wafer, and let's say there was also a $2 wafer for sale, you would 100% or, you know, with a high probability go for the $2 wafer because you're like, I'm not that indulgent that I'm going to buy a $3 (laughs) wafer, but I'm also not going for the crap $1 wafer that I don't know, like, you know, has probably some chemical additives that I don't Uh want, that I don't want to ingest, right? And so, so this is a very, you know, this is how price can really influence our decisions, right? And, and you're right, in a contextual setting, it can have a huge effect. I've heard of a similar example. I don't know if this came up on the episode with Alexa, but I've, I've heard it elsewhere. At, at movie theaters, there is this phenomenon where they have three sizes of popcorn. And the difference in the price between the medium popcorn, for example, and the large popcorn, being the two larger sizes, is so small that people just end up buying the large popcorn. Because let's say it's an outrageous price for medium, but it's a slightly more outrageous, but not incredibly more outrageous price for large. You'll just pay the extra dollar or two to get the huge increase, even though both of those are just ridiculously priced. It's like the medium, by being expensive, ends up making the large seem less expensive relatively even though they're both ridiculous compared to a small, for example. Yeah. So th- this is this seems like it's kind of the same thing happening. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, basically, it's about how there can be decoys, what we call in the marketing literature, decoys, right? So basically, uh-huh. it's something that's been deliberately placed in order to increase the incidence of choice of another option. In the case of the compromise effect, yeah. there's a decoy that's lower priced or there's, there's a decoy that's higher priced that will increase the incidence of choice of the, of the medium priced item. And it's a win-win, right? So either people buy the medium or they buy the large, which is, you know, I mean, if there's a very small difference in price, the company's still making a lot of money. Uh I mean, the other strange cognitive bias that comes in there is this bias of anchoring, right? So we look at a price and we forget about everything else that we know about the world because we're like, oh, this is what popcorn is priced at. And we forget that, you know, or, or maybe we sort of remember that, oh, you can buy popcorn for like 99 cents that you can microwave and make in your house. Yeah. But then we're like, no, this makes sense. Yeah, you get blinders on, price blinders. Exactly. So it's a combination of, you know, these different cognitive biases that are at play. Cool. Yeah. So you've mentioned directly, but also in passing, this notion of familiarity, which is really important in the decision-making process, and like familiarity information gathering. You did drop a term really early on, which was choice deferral, right? So you're mentioning choice deferral. 
when we first spoke, you mentioned that you've actually coined a term yourself related to this. I'm not going to say the term because I want you to be the one to say for the first time on the show. And I want you to tell me a little bit about how you came to create this terminology. Tell us a bit about this new term that is essentially one of the focuses of your research. Yeah, sure. So thank you for bringing that up. It is indeed a term that I've coined, although it is related to another phenomenon that occurs in consumer research. So basically, I study choice deferral, and choice deferral is the putting off of choices. So, you know, something that consumers do all the time. You may go to the grocery store. I don't know why we're talking about grocery stores. We probably like shopping a lot. So when you go to the grocery store, you know, you might be interested in buying pasta sauce. And so you might see, you know, three different brands and you're not able to decide which brand you want. So you basically say, okay, you know, forget it. I'm going to get pasta sauce next week. So that's basically what deferral is. You're putting, putting off a choice for a later time. So you haven't said, I don't want pasta sauce. You've just said, I want pasta sauce, but I'm not going to decide just now. I'm going to put it off for another time. Right. Here's the timing kind of coming into things again, right? Exactly. Time is one aspect of the choice that I don't look at directly. But what I am interested in is sort of what happens once you put off the choice. So does that impact choices that come downstream? How does that impact your psychological mindset? And so what we do is we run experiments uh, and primarily online because, you know, this has been happening during COVID. We ask online participants to, uh, we first randomly assign them into a deferral scenario or a control scenario. And so in the deferral scenario, we show them a phone screen that's cracked. And we basically say, look, this has happened. Your phone screen has cracked and you've decided to put off repairing your screen. So that's the deferral condition. And then in the control condition, we basically show them a phone screen that's cracked. And we say, look, this has happened. And you've decided to fix your phone screen right away. And then we ask them to elaborate on, you know, why they would fix the screen right away or why they would defer fixing the screen to basically drive home the manipulation. Okay. So once they've been through this manipulation, we then ask them to make subsequent choices. We ask them to make more choices that are unrelated. So we ask them to choose between two different digital cameras. So we show them like two cameras. We show them the attributes of the cameras. And then we say, do you want to choose option A? Do you want to choose option B? Or do you want to choose neither and keep looking for other options. So that's that constitutes the deferral option. And so basically what we do is we give them a string of four choices that they can make. So there's digital cameras, there's laptops, there's vacations, and there's apartments. We had to take the vacation out because it was COVID and it was really triggering people. So we had to replace that. These are all pretty big ticket items. I'm, I'm curious to know if you ever ran something like this with like more small items. That's a good point. We did not. Choice deferral is something that has been looked at in the past in the marketing literature, but primarily what's been looked at is the reasons for choice deferral. So basically the precursors of choice deferral, the antecedents of choice deferral. These questions are are sort of derived from the literature. So we haven't made these questions up. The one thing about doing research is you sort of want to stop reinventing the wheel, right? So you want to invent something new. And so that's why we always stand on the shoulders of people who have come before us and use measures that have been used by people who have done research before us. Right, yeah, so same wheel, new spokes. Exactly, exactly. So what we find is that when we ask people to make subsequent choices after they've deferred or after they've been assigned to the random deferral scenario, they actually tend to defer more. So the people in the deferral scenario tend to defer more choices subsequently. Hmm. And this is a pretty significant effect. So what we're seeing is that there's a huge difference in the number of subsequent deferrals among the people who are in the deferral versus the control scenario. And so 
we've coined this, the deferral momentum effect. And there seems to be this sort of indecision that compounds over time. And so it seems to get stronger with subsequent decisions. Interesting. So that's why we call it a momentum. I have to just comment on this. I know before I touched on the fact that you've mentioned familiarity repeatedly so far, does the act of deferring become a familiar action that begets more deferral? We spoke about familiarity in terms of products, but can familiarity also be in terms of our behaviors? So that is a great point. So we haven't 100% figured out what the mechanism is, but we think we have a pretty good idea of what the mechanism is. And it's in part driven by what you said, it's this sort of familiarity with deferral and that becoming a sort of default behavior, right? So what we are trying to measure or what we think might be happening is that when you defer, what you're saying to yourself is that I'm putting this off for the future. And what that registers as in your brain is that the future is going to be better. When you put out something to the future, you basically say to yourself, oh, I'm going to have more money. I'm going to have more time. I'm basically going to have more resources to make this decision in the future, right? So you've basically said the present is not the right time for this decision. The future is the right time for this decision. You've somehow subconsciously convinced yourself that the future is going to be better. Then you say, oh, well, if the future is going to be better, I better put up this decision as well. I better put up the next decision as well. And I better put up the decision after that as well. I mean, this is what we think might be happening. So I'm actually just realizing now, this is not the second installment of decision-making on Abstract. This is the third installment of decision-making. Way back a year ago, I had Austin Trudeau on the podcast, and we spoke about delayed discounting. And this idea of putting off is very reminiscent of that exact fact. How, do, how can we differentiate between someone who has very strong delayed gratification who says, you know what, I don't need this sauce now, I can wait to have this sauce later. How do we compare that person's behavior to someone who has this deferral momentum building? Are they two sides of the same coin? How are they related? So that's a great point. And I think they're definitely related. So we measure this thing that's called impulsivity, which basically gets into, you know, uh, an impatience to buy. And basically the, the opposite of delayed gratification, right? The instant gratification, mm-hmm. the person who really wants to buy things now if they want something. And so what we're finding is that people who are impulsive, they don't defer. It is possible that people who have a tendency to sort of, you know, engage in delayed discounting, sort of engage in this delayed gratification, they probably are more likely to defer as well because, you know, they have a higher degree of patience, basically, right? They say that I can live with a phone that's not okay and I can sort of wait to fix my phone. And I think that there are pros and cons to this. So if your phone is cracked and you say, oh, I'm not going to fix it right now, I'm okay with the phone and I'm just going to put it off. Your phone may fall again, and then the entire screen breaks off, and and then you have to replace. It ends up being not just a $100 repair, but then like a $400 repair. So there is a risk to deferral, right? I mean, we might think of deferral as, oh, you know, you're putting off consumption. It's such a good thing. You're going to save money. But it's not. No, it's not always good because you might really need something urgently, and you might put it off. This is one side of the phenomenon that we're now trying to look at, like how deferral momentum can actually lead to suboptimal choices, right? Yeah. If I had a dollar for every time a scientist said, not always, I, I could retire right now. <laughs> because it's, it's amazing how many, how many, um, 
how much research shows that there are tendencies in behavior, there are patterns in behavior, but very rarely, I'm realizing now after more than 60 episodes of recording this podcast, do things exist in an absolute way, especially when you're dealing with human behavior. People aren't, aren't like that. In terms of the timing, because time has been one main theme of the episode so far, it seems like there's really three time points for decision-making. There's now, which is the impulsivity. There's later, which is the deferral or the delayed gratification. And then there's never. Where does the never part fit into decision-making? It's kind of like the null null decision for infinity. Like, does, does that exist in your research? How does, that, how does that figure into the picture? So that's a really good question as well, because the way we measure deferral at this point has been, you know, basically asking people, do you want option A, do you want option B, or do you want neither and continue looking for other options? Mm-hmm. We're thinking of adding a fourth option, which is sort of saying, do you not want this product at all? Which is basically the refusal. Okay. It would be interesting to see if the deferral momentum would still be there if people just said, no, I don't want this. Ooh. I like that. Like you could just nip the deferral in the bud by giving people a full out. Yes. So Ah, another thing that is very hard to test, but it also something that might be happening is there's this construct called cognitive closure. So when we make a decision, some people's brains have a higher tendency to do this. They're wired to basically complete the loop. So the loop is, you know, gathering information, deliberating, and then making a choice. Right? So that completes the loop. But if you defer, you basically say, oh, I'm putting this off for another time. The loop isn't really close because you haven't made the choice. You haven't made the decision. You've just put it off. You've just suspended it. It's gather, deliberate, gather, deliberate, gather, deliberate. Exactly. You just sort of keep going back and forth. right? Yeah. And so for some people who have a high need for cognitive closure, it's possible that deferral basically triggers this sense that something is incomplete. And then they can't progress with making another decision unless that first loop is complete. So basically, they then go on deferring more more decisions because, you know, something isn't right. So it's possible that when you say no, that completes the loop because it's like, I don't want this, right? And it's different to putting off the decision. It actually, it, it reminds me a little bit of like how you can you can run code. You can have a code that essentially iterates and mm-hmm. then once it hits a certain condition, it just exits that iterative loop. Maybe there is some kind of algorithm going on inside of our brains in this decision-making process. Yeah, it's, it's totally possible. Uh, the other thing that we've noticed with people who are in the deferral condition is that we ask them after they make a choice how confident they feel about the choice because we were wondering if deferral makes you less confident. So we thought that if deferral registers as the inability to make a choice, then you might doubt your decision-making abilities. You might say, oh, you know, does that mean that I'm a poor decision-maker? Does that mean I don't know enough to make decisions? And so that might deflate your confidence, right? And then we thought, oh, this confidence deflation maybe means that when you go to the next decision, you doubt your decision-making abilities again. And so then that means that you can't make a decision again. And then that deflates your confidence even further. So we thought that's the loop that's happening, you know, like deferral is driving lower self-confidence is driving more deferral, is driving lower self-confidence. And so it's a vicious cycle that never ends. I think I want to coin a new term, which is confidence deflation momentum. That's a good term. (laughs) 
But I have to burst your bubble because that's not what's happening. Okay. So when we measured confidence, we actually found that those who defer have a higher confidence. Get out. No, that's... (laughs) Leave. (laughs) Leave right now. No, please stay. Uh, Okay, what? Can you explain that? So what we think is happening is this thing called motivated reasoning. Basically, it's choice justification. So when you buy something, right, if people ask you after the choice, what your attitude towards that option is, you will report a higher amount of liking. So like if you've just bought Nike sneakers and then I ask you, how much do you like Nike? You'll say, hell yeah, I like Nike. I just bought their sneakers, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this motivated reasoning and this justification that goes on when you ask someone like, oh, you just made this choice. How confident are you? But we see that this is inflated for people who defer. So basically, there's something about deferral that is a bit off. And so in order to convince yourself that it's the right choice, you're like, oh, no, I made the right choice. This is the right choice. And then that can really drive that consistency bias. So when I get to the next choice, you're like, oh, I deferred in that choice before, and that was the right choice for me. So I'm going to do it again. So That's crazy. That is, that is a really unexpected effect. Yeah, so that's quite counterintuitive, at least for us it very, was, and I think very. it is to most people who hear about it. And that's cool, and now we're trying to sort of unpack, you know, why is this happening? Is it motivated reasoning? Is it something else that drive, that's driving this higher self-confidence? Well, I'd be happy to ask you a, a question that might help elucidate something about this. You completed a previous PhD in evolutionary biology. How has, how has your previous research in, in terms of completing that PhD, actually influenced uh, or informed your, your current research and, and maybe even helped you answer this question about why is it that we see this counterintuitive effect of increasing confidence with persistent deferral? I think that when you learn evolution, as you were talking just a second ago, you really tend to think about it in terms of this bigger view of how things are changing because it's a it's a very long in terms of time scales it's very large time scales over which this process occurs Mm -hmm. and so you have to have this you know sort of big scale view of the world and I think that makes us even in marketing you sort of have to have this big scale view of the world because you're not looking at just one individual you're looking at the sort of aggregate of a huge number of individuals and how they are likely to respond when things change this way or that. Excellent. I just want to end on this one note. I want to ask you, in terms of the research that you've done so far in this PhD or even in both PhDs, how could you crystallize everything you've done so far in a single piece of advice you could give to myself and to the listeners, something that you've learned that you think can actually improve the quality of life and the life experience for an individual? What's the biggest life-changing takeaway you've come across so far? Take your time. So I would basically say that whatever advice someone gives you about making decisions or making the right choice, you have to take it with a grain of salt because one decision-making style doesn't work for everyone. I mean, if my research into human consumer decision-making has taught me anything, it's that people have different decision-making styles. And often what we think about making the best decision is gathering as much data as we can and going through all the data that often doesn't in the long term doesn't mean you know the greatest well-being so what i would say is 
maybe this is sort of like the next direction and and it already seems to be the next direction in which decision making is heading is outsource as much decision making as you can to a machine that can actually optimize the decision making right and then <laughs> okay and then take that and see how that fits in with your sort of actual preference right and then make a choice okay so you're 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 vying for a human computer interface of sorts to aid the decision making process i mean that that is definitely an interesting option different way of thinking about it interesting way to go yeah i think so and i think the reason i feel that is because i mean if research has showed us anything it's shown us that our our rationality is bounded you know we have we have a bounded rationality don't get me started on bounded rationality <laughs> the episode was supposed to be over 5 minutes ago <laughs> oh my goodness what you know I love coming to this point in the episode where it feels like we could start a whole new one right now. The beauty about this podcast is that, fingers crossed, it's going to be around for a very long time and I would be happy to have you back on to talk about all the things we did not get to talk about, like bounded rationality. So let's just leave that as a cliffhanger for myself and the listeners and give us something to look forward to next time you're around. So Tanya, thank you so much. Your your presence here and your knowledge has been invaluable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic, and it's definitely generated a lot of questions in my mind, which I will be pondering for the rest of my day. <laughs> Excellent. I thought you were going to say for the rest of my days, which would be <laughs> a very different meaning. But in any event, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have an awesome rest of your day. You're great. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.